second Bible reading for this evening comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it goes through the whole of verse, um, chapter 5 to chapter 6 verse 8. And sorry, I don't know what the page number is because I'm not using a church pew Bible. Um, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take... Take it before the ungodly, for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not, con- are you not contempt to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes among such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, no one goes to law against another, and for this in front of believers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, uh, Rachel, for reading that passage of scripture for us tonight, as well as uh, Shirley working our way through uh, Leviticus chapter 18. What a what a passage! What a chapter that is, and uh, it is it is God's word, and it's there for our encouragement as well. So let's uh, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom as we look at this word tonight on an important topic of 
discipline in your church. We pray that your spirit will speak to our hearts, Lord. We come before you as those redeemed in Christ. We thank you that there is forgiveness and grace in Jesus. And so we look to you, Lord, as we work through this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as John uh, did mention, this is uh, one of those tough passages. And uh, as we work through a book uh, in the Bible, uh, we can't escape uh, the, the difficult passages as well. And it is there for us to be, uh, to be encouraged, to be dealt with. And so that's what we're going to do uh, tonight. I wonder whether any, any one of us has been disciplined by our parents. Anyone, maybe, in the past? Remember, okay, I see some hands going up. Well, I was. Um, some of you know that I enjoy playing cricket. And one day I did something that I shouldn't have done. I was playing cricket in the backyard of our home. I was not supposed to use a leather ball. It was always supposed to be a tennis ball. But that day with my friend, I thought, well, let's, let's go for it. Let's play with the leather ball. And so I bowled. And then after that, I started batting. And instead of just playing very low and slow shots, I just hit this ball right to the window of my bedroom window. And it well, broke all and shattered the glass. I was dreading the arrival of my father that evening. My father is a very patient man. I can get away with a lot of things with my dad, but not so with my mom. But that night, boy, I was in for it. He said, son, you are going to sleep right next to that broken window for the next few days. We put a piece of wood there so that it's kind of safe. But you're going to sleep right next to it. Uh, for the next few days, and you're not going to receive any of your pocket money either. And that was indeed a discipline, and I had to stay there, and I was fearful, obviously, as a young guy, but I slept right next to the the broken window. I had to pay the price. Um, Thankfully, it was all fixed. Discipline, none of us really like it, do we? Uh, We don't like discipline, perhaps, when we're at school, by our teachers, in our society. One of the breakdowns in our society is the lack of discipline. Well, is Church discipline actually necessary? Is there such a thing as discipline within the church? You see, Paul, as we have worked our way through in 1 Corinthians, has moved on from leadership and its focus on, uh, on, on leadership, as we have seen so far in our series. And now he focuses on a major issue in the church at Corinth, which is sexual sin. It is unthinkable that such a sexual sin could take place within the church. Should it be dealt with or should it be swept under the carpet? What's the easy option? Just let it go by, isn't it? Just let it go by. Sweep it under the carpet. No one really cares. Does it really matter? Why should it be dealt with in any case? Who really cares? If you're in a social organization, in a, in a, in a club, in a golf club, or a, or a bowling club, or a cricket club, or, or in your workplace, things like this might take place. Who really cares? What's the difference? Why, why, is, why is it so important in the church? Well, tonight we're going to look at uh, this, this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to chapter 6, verse 8, and I've given you an outline. We're going to look at the report, the removal, the reason, the rebuke, there's a summary, and then I will conclude. So we're going to look at the report here if in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. 
Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? What a sad state of affairs. The report was about sexual immorality that was going on in the church. The word that is used here for sexual immorality is the word, uh, is the word that we have, it's called pornia. That is, we get this word fornication. From this particular word, we also get the word pornography. And so it has been reported that there is fornication among you. Now we might ask the question, what is fornication? Fornication is sexual activity outside of marriage. So it's not actually adultery that is going on here. It's actually fornication. This particular act of sexual immorality that was going on in the church at Corinth was unthinkable and unimaginable. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, that it's a shocking sin of a kind that is not even taking place with pagans. Even pagans don't tolerate it, Paul says. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the tense here tells us that this was an ongoing sexual relationship in the church. This term, his father's wife, means his stepmother. The man's name is not mentioned, nor is the woman's name mentioned. It may have been that the father's first wife had died, and the father remarried, and this was his second wife. This father had a son, and the son developed a sexual relationship with his stepmother. What a sad state of affairs. This would have been a source of terrible humiliation, and a very sad situation for the father to have to face. Imagine the shame for the father. Imagine the shame in the household. Imagine the conversations that perhaps would have gone out in the little town perhaps. What a situation to be in. And so Paul says that this kind of sexual immorality that was going on in the church does not even take place among the pagans who do not tolerate a man sleeping with his father's wife. Such behavior did not even take place outside in the world, amongst non-Christians. You see, the Romans were very out there with their sexual practices. If you've been to Rome, you've been to places in Rome, you'll see they're, they're very extravagantly uh, showing away their, their sexual desires and everything else through all the statues and all of that. They were very much out there. But even amongst the Romans, the pagans, they forbade such a situation. What was going on here, friends, was incest in the church. And it was prohibited in the Bible. And yet it was going on right there in the church. We read Leviticus chapter 18, that, that massive chapter in our first reading. Let me refer to a passage there in Leviticus 18, 6 and 8. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do we see the connection now? That's why we read Leviticus chapter 18. It will dishonor your father. How did the church of Corinth respond to this incest that was going on within the church? You would think that they would be dismayed, wouldn't you? You would think that they would be saddened at this blatant sin. Sadly not so the church at Corinth. The church in fact tolerated it. The church tolerated the fact that two people were sleeping around in blatant open sin against God and his people. 
Not only did they tolerate it, instead we see in, in verse 2, and you are proud, Paul says. <laughs> you are proud of what is going on in your church. You are proud about your great teachers. You are proud about your leaders. You are proud about following Apollos and so and so and Paul and, and etc. And everything else that was going on in the church. You are proud about even this situation. You should have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. They should have gone into mourning. Instead they were puffed up. They were proud of the way their church was. How wrong they were. How wrong a church can be, isn't it? We've got everything going in the church. We've got our programs. We've got our preaching plans. We've got our ministry teams. We've got our growth groups. We've got our kids' church. We've got everything else going on. We can be proud about these things. Not really. We can be thankful to God for that. But what about the inside real dynamics of the church? The real life of God's people? How does that measure up with God? It tells us of the unspiritual state of this church. We have been speaking about church leadership, as I said, in the past few weeks. Well, where were the leaders when this was going on right under their leadership? Where were they? Listen to how Paul responds to this report in verses 3 and 5. He calls on them to remove the offending person. For my part, even though, verses 3 to 5, Though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, Paul is not physically present with them, but he is with them in spirit, and he has already cast judgment. In whose name? In the name of the Lord Jesus, on the person who is doing such an immoral act. Why is it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Because the church belongs to whom? Who does this church belong to? Well, at the human level, you say, okay, the Presbyterian church. But really, the church belongs to Christ. Is that not the case? This church belongs to Jesus. Therefore, they must act by dealing with the unacceptable situation. There is a disciplinary process to follow. And if you want to look further into the discipline process, you can look at, I suggest you look at Matthew chapter 18, and we won't do that tonight. In the case of the Presbyterian Church, I thought I'd put this one in here. If there is any discipline matters in the local church, it is to be dealt with by the elders. You know, one of the questions we ask people when they become members is, do you submit to the authority of the elders as they exercise pastoral oversight over this congregation. Now that, that question is read and people answer yes. <laughs> but really? <laughs> what would we really do if there's a difficult situation? Would you actually really submit uh, to the authority of the session? Well, we have to. In the case of uh, the local church, it's the elders who, who, who would enact discipline. In the matter of ministers, for John and myself, we are not under the session of this church. We do not come under their authority whatsoever. We are under the authority of the presbytery. 
And if John or myself uh, is in trouble in any shape or form, <laughs> the presbytery will act and we trust they would. Okay? So here in the Corinthian context, the church is to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. The church gathers in the power of the Lord because the Lord is present where two or three are gathered in his name. The Lord is in his church. We don't need to invite Jesus to his church. I, I was once at a service uh, where, and, and I was sitting there and, and this person, the service leader said, Oh, uh, we, we, we invite you, Jesus, into our uh, gathering this evening. And I thought to myself, well, really? <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to be invited to his own church, does he? He's, he's the head of the church. He, come, he is here. He doesn't have a special invitation to come here. Who do, we, who do we think we are to ask Jesus to come into his own church? My goodness. Right. He invites us to come to him. See, the so church gathers in his name. And, uh, and, and, and so there is an action here. So the Corinthian church is to come together in the presence. I hope you're following me in, in your Bibles here tonight. To come together in the presence of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, that is by his authority, and to deal with this matter. And the purpose of this gathering is for discipline. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hand this man over to Satan. This is a very unusual expression. It is used only in one other place, and that is... In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander whom I have handed over to, you, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You see friends, Satan is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this age. In fact in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So handing the man over to Satan is to hand the person to the world, so to speak, and in doing so, to put the person outside of the church. It is to remove the person from the church. The person has forfeited all rights to Christian privileges. It is to put the person out into Satan's domain. One writer puts it this way. It is a very forcible expression for the loss of all Christian privileges. This is church discipline. One of the marks of a true church. In fact, there are three marks of a church, a true church. One is the preaching of the word of God. Secondly, the proper administration of the sacraments. We're talking from a reform perspective. Reformation marks of a true church. And the third thing is church discipline. And I suspect that the third thing is uh, one thing that we kind of shy away from. Because it's really hard, isn't it? Going through a discipline process is actually a painful experience. Really, it is. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. It's emotional. It's draining mentally and physically. I've sat through a couple of situations in the past. It is not an easy situation to be in. Really, it is. And so, we kind of shy away from it. It's very confronting. It's very challenging. It's heart-wrenching. So, here in this passage, it is excommunication from the church. Notice the purpose of handing the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be served. Now, what are we to make from this? The destruction of the flesh. It's complicated here, okay? We can look at it in two ways. One, 
The word flesh could refer to a sinful nature. That is, so to hand the person over to Satan is to let the sinful lust in that person be, be destructed. But the difficulty with this position is that, with this option is that, if you let the person lose to Satan, it could be that his sinful nature will continue to, to become more and more uh, apparent in his life. So that, that would be a dangerous situation to go to. There's another view, and that is the destruction of the flesh can refer to the physical. This could then refer to sickness, to physical suffering, and even death. Can you imagine that? Let me give you one example. Old Testament character. Anyone? Where Satan comes in with, with, and has a discussion with God. And God says, well, you can have him, but you can't touch his life, really. Who's the, who's the guy I'm thinking of? Job. Alright. And what did Satan do? Look at chapter 1, right? Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you on your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, this is Job chapter 2, 4 to 7, and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Satan. So the point, friends, to be handed over to Satan is destructive and it's a terrible space to be in. And there's a warning here. And as I prepared in this talk, I was thinking about this as well. The warning is, and I put here on my notes, let's not play games with God. Alright. <laughs> let's not play games with God. I mean, it's very easy for us to say, God, you're a, you're a loving God and that it's all true and etc. And he's a wonderful God, he's a faithful God. But I think God is serious. Don't you think so? He's serious about protecting the integrity of his name and his church. I, I, th- I think that that's what's coming out in this chapter here. Notice verse 5c in our passage. So that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Paul's concern here was for the salvation of the person committing this immoral act. Paul's concern was that this person be saved on the day of the Lord. And Paul expects to see this disciplined person with the Lord's people. Satan can't touch a person's spirit. Is that clear? When a spirit has been, when a person has been born again, the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and that person has been saved until the day of redemption. The spirit of this offending person who is committing this terrible act belongs to Christ because he is part of this church here. He has already been redeemed in Christ, though in this world he may pay for the consequences of his his actions by being handed over to Satan. But the purpose of Christian discipline is always restoration. It is always to bring the person back to God. It is not to trample a person and to throw the person away, but it is to bring the person, the offending person, back to God. So that there is rejoicing in the congregation. The brother who is now lost is found and he's come back. Or the sister. It is restoration. It is reconciliation back into the family of God. Because the person has repented and come back and Paul is concerned for the spirit or the soul of that person. So Paul goes on to show the reason as to why the person must be removed. 6 to 13, you can read that. Your boasting is not good, though you know that a little yeast leavens the whole whole batch of dough. 
Get rid of the, the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb. Now here is another massive uh, uh, section here. Paul is concerned about the welfare of the church and he refers to a little yeast. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Well, we have a bread machine at home. How many of you? Everyone has a bread machine? Some of you do, right? I, I love the bread machine. Well, the fact that... Uh, you, you, uh, and on special occasions like birthdays and other days, uh, we, we use the bread machine. And Rose puts the bread mix in the machine, usually in the night before we go to bed, and sets the timer on so that when we get up in the morning, oh, we get the nice smell of fresh bread. I think that's fantastic. All right? So we get up in the morning, we enjoy fresh bread. One or two occasions, it hasn't really worked well. It was so flat. The bread was actually flat. It didn't rise. Well, when you buy a bread mix, and I, I have checked this out because she buys the bread mix, and there's a little packet, a small packet of yeast. They're supposed to put the yeast with this big packet of mix, mix the whole thing together, and put it in the machine. The yeast is only a little packet. It's only a very tiny packet in comparison to the big packet of, uh, of the bread mix. And you put it in there, and it leavens the whole dough, and so the bread rises. And so in the morning when you get up, you've got a beautiful loaf, nice smell, the bread has risen, the yeast has done its job. Well, in the Jewish homes, they bake their own bread. So they knew what Paul was speaking about. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast. You see, sin is like yeast. It will work its way through until it affects the whole body. It starts small. And then it starts to work its way through. And the body is affected. So Paul says, get rid of the old yeast because it is a sin in the church that affects the entire church. Get rid of it. Why? Because we are now new, unleavened, we are a new, unleavened batch. Remember the Passover, friends? We can't go into all the details here tonight. Let me just refer very quickly to Exodus. With the dough the Israelites had brought, brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. When God told Israel to leave Egypt, he gave them a feast. It was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it symbolized God had brought them out of Egypt, out of bondage from Egypt. But now the old batch has gone and we have a new batch, a new creation in Christ and Paul speaks of this when he says, when he refers to Christ as our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old leaven, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now why would Paul say this? Now, friends, look at this passage. He refers to Christ as our Passover lamb has been Sacrifice. Why would Paul bring that in? Remember the Passover in Exodus? The Israelites were under bondage in Egypt and then God made it possible for them to leave Egypt. But before they left Egypt, they had to do something. Exodus chapter 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, the Passover. God was passing over these places that had the blood on their doorposts. And by this act, God made a separation. This is the important point here, okay? God made a separation between his people and the Egyptians. 
The sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost symbolize the separation of Israel from Egypt. In contrast to the Old Testament Passover feast, Christians now celebrate the new Passover in Jesus Christ. That is, he shed his blood on the cross and by faith in him, we are now set apart for him. The church is now his, bought with his precious blood, set apart to be holy in Christ. And we live a holy life in response to his grace. Do you think, I had my professional faith class today, and we were talking about this holiness. Do you think holiness matters? Do you think it really matters how we live? Does it, does, does it really matter? Why? Why would it matter? Surely we are living under grace. Who cares how we live? Does holiness matter in the first place? Does it matter that we live holy lives? We think about that. And why would you want to do it? Well, friends, let me say this. We are called by God. And, 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 and I'll come back to that in a moment, you see. And as the Jews celebrate a Passover with, with unleavened bread, so now Christians celebrate our continual Passover with unleavened lives. That is, lives that are driven and motivated by Christ in response to what he has done. Look at verses 9 to 12. I wrote to you in my letter, in verses 9 to 12, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. Okay? Who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But, verse 11, but now. What do you see in verse 11? Anyone likes to read it? But now, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be what? A brother or a sister. Who is sexually immoral or greedy? Can you? This, this is harsh, isn't it? It sounds so harsh. It sounds so hard. Paul is saying about the world, that's different. That might happen there in the world, out there, but in the church, it cannot be. Why? Because of that separation. We are the unleavened, Christ the Passover Lamb. It's different. You are his. And so the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God on the cross, is the separation of the believer from the world. Just like the Passover Lamb was the symbol of separation of Israel, leaving their life in Egypt, so is ours. We are now set apart for Christ. And notice Paul's strong language there in the text. See, we no longer follow the way of this world, but we live now for Christ. And sexual immorality or fornication is no part of this new life, because our bodies now belong to Christ. And I think John will touch on that, because chapter 6 later on speaks about sexual immorality and all of that. I won't go into and take John's part of his sermon from next time. But You see, this is what it is. We are his. We're connected to Christ. What a privilege it is. What a joy it is to be connected to this amazing Savior who has redeemed us and has redeemed our bodies to belong to Him because He wants the best for us even in the area of sexual integrity. God wants the best for us in that area because He's the one who has given sexual pleasure to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. 
That's how we see it. That's how God's word tells us. So Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not, uh, not to judge those outside, uh, inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Expel. And then we have the rebuke. Uh, which is taking us into another area of lawsuits within the church. 6, 1 to 8. I'm not going to read that section. Now I want to make some observations here. It is important to note that Paul is not saying that Christians can't get justice in the courts of the land. That's not what he's saying. Uh, there is a place for the courts of the land to deal with civil and criminal matters. God has established order in society and the courts are important to maintain justice by protecting the rights of people and punishing the wrong. Paul is not saying that every judge in the world is unjust. He's not saying that. There are some amazing judges who do a fantastic work. The judiciary is an important institution in any country and God himself is the God of justice. What Paul is talking about here, about these judges, is that in the, is, is the spiritual state of the judges and not their ability to make any pronouncements. So Paul asks, is it possible that there is nobody among you who can resolve your problems? They were taking one another to court. <laughs> so I have a problem with, um, with one of you. Instead of going and dealing with it one on one, or going to the church, I'll say, okay, I'll see you in the courts. I'll see you in the, I'll, I'll see you in the Supreme Court. And if I can't get my way there, I'll take you to the High Court. How's that? Not that I will, because I, I don't have any money anyway, so. <laughs> All right. Okay? But, but put it in the context. So you have a problem with somebody, you say, okay, we'll see you in the courts. That's the easy option, isn't it? Suing one another, rather than dealing with the issues internally. Inter. Or sometimes, it's unfortunate that churches do take even their own bodies to church sometimes. And, and, and that is sad. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know, do you not know, do you not know, Paul says, six times I think in this. Seven and eight. The, re- the very fact that you, you have lawsuits among you means you have already been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not? Friends, they're suing each other. Hard to imagine that this was a church. What a witness to the world. What a sad state of affairs this church had become. They were blinded by their own sin. Maybe never be blinded by our own sin. So as we sum up, quick summary. What we've seen tonight is sexual immorality within the church, incest. A a situation that unthinkable, unimaginable, not even taking place in the world out there. The offender had to be disciplined, excommunication, the purity of the church was at stake, the welfare of the church had to be preserved. The lawsuits taken against each other, which was very, indeed, sad. So as I conclude, is church discipline necessary? I wonder if I take a survey what kind of response will I receive? What kind of response will we get tonight? I haven't looked at this passage. What do you think? Hmm? I see some heads nodding. It's tough, isn't it? It's a tough thing to go through. I hate it. Because it's hard. But it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God's word. Because remember, the church is his. It doesn't belong to me. If this word we believe and we accept it, then we must practice it as well. And that we don't pick and choose. All of this is part of God's word. So is church discipline necessary? 
four things very quickly. Discipline is necessary to maintain the purity of the church and for its reputation and witness in the world. We are reminded that God takes sin seriously. We've seen that tonight. And in this case, if there is sexual immorality, fornication, people sleeping around with each other before marriage, whatever the situation might be, has to be dealt with. There's no other way. Right. Going on by members, special members in the church, it is known to the church, it must be dealt with. Two, discipline is necessary because God is holy. I, Leviticus chapter 18, I am the Lord. Twice. You do this because I am the Lord. We Ian read tonight from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You're a holy nation. A people called out by God. For what? To sing the praises of him who called you. We are his. God is holy. We are a holy people. You might not think so. You might look at your life and say, me, a holy person? Not me. You just don't know what goes on in my heart. And that's true. But we are set apart. I'll show you why. Because Paul says this. Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. So I thought I'd change the... the well, put it this way. To the church of God in St. Stephen's, Surrey Hills. Alright. I'm not doing anything wrong here. I'm just changing Corinth. To, uh, to, so, to the church of God in St. Stephen's, Surrey Hills... To those sanctified in Christ, who is that? Who is that? Uh, us, right? And called to be his holy people, who is that? Outside or us here? It's us. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Do you see that? <laughs> we at St. Stephen's are the church of God, sanctified in Christ, Called to be his holy people, together with those. We belong to him. We are called to belong. Thirdly, discipline is necessary because it restores the offender to the church family and ultimately to the Lord himself. The action that is removing this man from the church was taken so that he might consider his sin, he might repent of it. Church discipline is always restoration in mind. Because the text says that, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And finally, fourth point. Discipline is necessary because where there is such sin, the offender is to acknowledge the sin, repent and ask for forgiveness, which is freely and fully granted in Christ, the Passover Lamb. None of us can claim purity in our lives apart from Christ. Is that right? Okay. At the cross, Jesus took my sin. He took yours. And when we turn to him, and when you repent of your sin, whatever that sin might be between you and God, or between you and others, Christ will forgive you. Is that clear? He forgives us all our sins, once and for all, at the cross. And at the cross, there is freedom. At the cross, there is grace. At the cross, God's love embraces a sinner. And restores him or her back to himself. God is in the business of restoring people to himself. So never go out of this place tonight thinking, "Ah, I'm such a miserable person, I need to be kicked out of this church. No. I don't know what sin is in your heart and mine, but whatever that might be, well, I know what is in my heart, whatever is in yours. If that is offensive to God, I need to repent. If it's offensive to my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
I certainly need to repent. Because we are the body of Christ. And my actions will affect others as well. And the purity of the church must be always uppermost in our hearts and minds. Because I am the Lord. I am holy, God says. Amen. <coughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us navigate our way through this um, somewhat challenging passage. Lord, we thank you that Christ is the Passover lamb. That he gave his everything for us. We repent of our sins. Turn to him. We thank you that you reminded us that we are sanctified in Christ, set apart in Christ. Called to be your holy people. And so help us, Lord, to live such lives that bring honor and glory to your name. Oh Lord, we pray that you will show us Christ always. That we would know this Jesus. Amen.